This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto the famed Locust Walk on a wet April, no May, I'm sorry, it's May now, wet May Wednesday morning. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with Eric Bradlow. And Adi Weiner, good morning, gentlemen. Hey, good morning, Cade. Adi's in. He'll be out. He'll be back. But we're here for the next two hours. Some combination of us are here every every Wednesday morning, eight to ten Eastern. You would love it if you join us. You can give us a ring one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us businessradio at siriusxm dot com. Businessradio at siriusxm dot com. Matt Datz, our producer, will take your email during the show. We have responded live. You wouldn't think email is the best way to get on live, but it happens. If you're listening, one of the times we're replayed, it's a great way to get in touch with us. We're replayed four or five times over the course of the week. If it's not 8 to 10 Eastern right now, AM that is, it's not live, but you can still reach us. You can also reach out to us by Twitter. We're on Twitter these days, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle, and we follow all of our guests up there. We tweet periodically about the world of sports analytics. It's a great way to stay in touch with sports analytics. You can also send us questions. You can send us over-unders. We take over-unders off the off the off our Twitter account. We, we that's a segment we end with these days. So it's not a bad way to reach out to us. We have our usual guest segments, one at the bottom of this hour, one at the top of the next hour. That'll be Rick Peterson. Haven't talked to Rick in a few weeks. And then we have Michael Lopez, one of our favorite sports analysts a fellow academic at the top of the next hour. So, fun show. Adi is indeed here, wet hair and all. He survived the commute in. Adi, good morning to you. Good morning. It is uh, messy out there. It's messy, and it's going to be messy for a few days. But we got two hours to talk sports analytics. I'm curious. Fellas, what has caught your eye? Well, before I get to the game last night, the basketball game last night, I want to talk about something that maybe is not people aren't as aware of, which is... The MVP of the Celtics. There's no doubt in my mind who it is. Adi, do you know who it is? I know what you're going to say. It's a guy say. that hasn't played for the Celtics for over 20 years, and his name oh. is Danny Ainge. Yeah, was, D- Danny Ainge. I didn't. I went to guess that. Well, let me I say the coach, maybe. Or. Oh no, let me say why I'm <laughs> going to say Danny Ainge. So us Sixers fans know this well, and maybe it'll turn out to be a good trade for the Sixers. Maybe it won't. Last year, we wanted the number one pick because Markel Fultz was the That's consensus right. number one player. So we could debate, but he was the number one player. We traded the number three pick, which turns out to be Jason Tatum, That's right. who's an extraordinary player, and the Sacramento Kings' unprotected pick in 2019 to move up from three to one. So we gave up a three and next year's number one for that pick. Now, besides that pick, besides getting Jason Tatum, who's a huge part of their team, besides having Sacramento's pick next year, Boston has the Grizzlies' number one pick, as long as it falls outside the top eight. They have the Clippers' number one pick, 
as long as it falls, <laughs> as long as the Clippers don't make make the playoffs outside the fourteen and their own pick. So let's think about this. Do we agree the Celtics look pretty good right now? They do, okay, particularly wait. with their their and injured list, right? So now next year, added on to this team will be Kyrie Irving, Gordon Haywood, the Sacramento number one pick. Boston's number one pick, and potentially Memphis's and the Clippers' number one. Okay, picks. but let me just let me just just that's the MVP this. of that team. Okay, but this is not football, so it it's it's supposed to at least decline much more rapidly. So it's not like all first rounds are the same or even close to the same. Once you get off the top one, two, three, it's supposed to decline rather precipitously. So when you say number one pick, number one pick, number one pick, that's not like saying football, number one pick, number one pick, because well, that's a lot of value. Well, let's be clear. Do we, Sacramento was one of the worst teams in the NBA last year. Sacramento's un, unprotected, unprotected. They number might one pick a, is worth, that could top. be a number yes. three, four, five pick. Actually, it's interesting you bring that up, because I was looking at that last night. Um, Jerry West represented the Clippers last night. The Clippers in the NBA draft had numbers. Th- they were projected to get numbers thirteen and twelve, which is where they ended up staying. The question is, according to the trade charts, how much is thirteen and twelve in the NBA worth? Any guys guesses? You know, I looked up about five different charts last night. But if the Relative Clippers were to number one, correct. If the Clippers were going to give up thirteen and twelve, would they get number seven? Would they get number five? Would they get number three? Now, where would it be in football? Why don't we start exactly. with that? Let's start with that. Thirteen can, and twelve. Can I guess? Because you're the expert, Kate. I, I'll be, but I'm doing it off the top of my head. Just guess. All right. Well, I'll just it's just ballpark. So if I had to ballpark thirteen and twelve, 13 combined, and 12 as combined, a function as a function of one. As a function of one, as a fraction of one, as a fraction or, of one. or a multiple of one. Well, so, right. Or another one way to say it is, what, we, we, what pick would you get yeah. if you traded 13 and 12 in the NFL? Where would that get you? you How gonna, high you would gonna, you go? Gonna guess uh, okay, I'm going to guess if you trade 13 and 12 in the NFL, it'll get you four. Yeah, I, I'm going to guess it's 80 or 90 percent of number one, and I'm going to guess that's number three or four, but that's a ball. Yeah, it's somewhere between and I, three. And I'm going to guess this decline is steeper in the NBA. It so is steeper. Yes. It's going to get you, Way I don't steeper. know, six or something. Yeah, it's somewhere right around right. six. Six okay. or seven. Okay. It's six or seven. And even six is a tiny fraction of one, I would guess. It, it, it is a tiny fraction. At, but again, all I'm commenting on is... Tiny, tiny no. It's going to be at least half no. the value. Half the value of one. Well, probably. if you it's, look at... It was in the high 40s. Okay. The, the reason why I think about NFL so... Di- I mean, NBA so differently is the impact of the player... It's capped. It's the, the single player can have so much impact, more, way more than, than even the quarterback in football. So uh, I, don't, I don't know about that. Game but, changer. Let me I mean, ask you another question. Is it another possibility, by the way, is that the, this is the one thing in basketball. I know it's sort of true in football, but there is only one basketball in a basketball game, which means that if you have a bunch of great players, like another argument could be that it's not as great for the Celtics is, look, Kyrie Irving's coming back. Hayward's coming back. You've got Brown and Tatum already. Let's say you bring in two great players. Well, there is only one ball. There is only five slots on the court at any point in time. (laughs) So, you know, yes, their bench will be better, but I'm just saying, yes, they'll have an impact. But in terms of objective measurables, it's kind of like anybody the Celtics draft now, like, they're not going to put up 20 and 10 because they, they're just one basketball. But, but they Eric, already have guys that are scoring 90% of the points and getting most of the assists. Fair enough. But it's so much draft capital, and Ainge has proven himself a good manager I, of it. This, what this means is he should be taken care of in terms of draft capital for years and years and years. They can draft players and move them, 
for future draft picks. You can trade him forward. They can trade away the picks straight away. Look, I just, I, you asked me what called my I just told you I thought he was the MVP of the team, and I hate Danny Ainge, and I hate the Celtics, <laughs> but I mean, the guy's stockpile potentially right. four number one picks. He he's right. getting four number one picks. Let's right. be clear. Whether he drafts them all next year or not, and by the way, if they're protected, if they're in the top eight for the Grizzlies or the top 14, and, and they don't get it, they, they become unprotected the next year. Yeah, right. Right, because that's probably what they had this year with the Kings pick. Exactly. Well, it was it was more complicated, but yes, it was. If it, if it was two to five, they would have gotten it. Otherwise, the Sixers got it, which ended up at number ten. So the Sixers ended up in the ten slot. I see. But had it been the two or three, the Celtics would have gotten it. So by now, the way, now it's unprotected. By the way, the Kings did well in the lottery last night, right? They went from seven to two, which is a massive. Right. This is Audi's point. That's yeah. right. I mean, yeah. the, the big winner in the draft, Phoenix, ended up number one, but they had the worst record. They were sitting there at the top. But it is random. They had a 25% chance. Yeah. 25%. Which is not huge. No. But they had 25%. By the way, apparently. <laughs> one out of four. Well, we could do the math. Turns out, by the way, this is, I think, Matt, Matt Datz, our producer, can put it on Cade's screen. I'm pretty sure it's the sixth consecutive year that the team with the worst record that, has ended up with the number one pick. That's what I read, yes. So let's that start doing a little bit. Well, this is why we're a sports and analytics that's, that's show. That's about one in 4,000. <laughs> Although you shouldn't count the first one because once you have that one in the bag, then then you start the counting. So it's about one in 2,000. Adi, you may not know this, but conspiracy theories abound about the NBA lottery draft. So you're a good company. Well, so, no, let's ask you a question about that. So at what point does it get to where you would say, like if this, this were... Is a, a, this, is, this is evidence in favor of the conspiracy theory. Well, the problem is, this is actually, we have to think about this scientifically for a moment. So the conspiracy theory, they just looked for, they believe this is happening, and this, of course, is proof. The uh, scientist turns it around how and else, say, How else could the Knicks right, have gotten so, Patrick Ewing? Right? <laughs> right? It must have been... Because we deserved it? <laughs> right, we must have. So let's, take it, let's turn it around. You have to ask yourself, the, the only way that you can get six in a row, I would argue we're not even counting after the first, so it's five in a row, with one in four shot each time, so that's one and four to the fifth, so that's one and two to the to the tenth. So it's that's about, about one and a thousand. That's one and a thousand twenty four. Yep. Um, when you take out the first one, and that so was a neat trick you just did. One in one and four to the fifth is the same as one half to the tenth. Indeed, so that you is cut true. The denominator in half and but double the exponent. I, I, that's I, I, the easiest way to do that. I didn't know that rule, but I just have. To, <laughs> that's true. But also, I mean, when you when you do this kind of mental math, you know, it goes four sixteen sixty four two fifty six thousand twenty four. I mean, those are things that are ingrained we're, in we're my head, unfortunately. But so, you got there by doing that exponent denominator change thing, which you know y'all are mocking me, but I guarantee I'm not the only person going. What? What was that? Well, there are lots of ways. Oh, I'm not even getting started on all the <laughs> on all the math, the mental math tricks you can do. There's of course one plus one over n to the n. Now, which is, Oh, we don't e. want to go down no, that way. You, you, did this, there, yeah. you did this in the natural <laughs> way, and it jumped out. All right, so the thing is one in a thousand. So what, how frequently do one in a thousand events happen? Well, the obvious answer is one in a thousand times, but actually it's not. It's much more frequently because we have many opportunities to observe rare events, and they, they just accumulate and they happen. And the fact that we're looking at this one is interesting because we've probably started to look at, look at this even before the data was even taken because we wondered about this issue that this is so – um, luck dependent, yet so many livelihoods, really, literally, livelihoods depend on the, mm -hmm. this outcome, and it, it's such a such a opportunity there for some kind of machination. Mm -hmm. So one would argue that it doesn't take that much evidence to convince you that maybe I, there's okay, some. I think you would agree the following: if it went four more years, let's say, and it still happened. So now we're at one in two hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah, I mean, look, then you're starting to say to yourself, right. I'm, I'm not, but you're you, not convinced but, but yet. Where's the I'm line? not convinced yet. Okay, so y'all should know that Adi does 
occasional work as in litigation. They'll bring him as an expert witness to on exactly these kinds of things. Absolutely. It's like, is this plausible? You know, that, that kind of thing. So, Adi, I heard you kind of give a lecture, frankly, on conspiracy theories and yes. rare events. Yes. Yeah. I didn't really hear a position. So I want, I'd like to hear your position. Well, the, uh, the position has to do with, with – partly has to do with, with the prior. So the prior is essentially what your beliefs are before there's any data. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, you're, if your prior is, as mine might be, that the, the stakes are so stacked against this kind of conspiracy because – think about how many people have to be involved to cover this up and the explosive, disastrous consequences for the league if this is uncovered. That leads me to a prior distribution that's very, very, very unlikely that there would be any kind of manipulation Good. of this. And so, that, then you have to update so the prior. So I've updated this prior, um, and, that, and that leaves me with, with a sort of a, a posterior um, estimate of what's going on. And the, I, and the update is the thing you just calculated, that's right. which is so one of But I want to add one other thing. You're not just – you're also putting – I mean, just for our fans out there, you're also putting not only a distribution that's near zero, but you're putting a massive amount of weight on it. It's, yes. just, it's oh, not yeah. just that – your habits. I mean, you could have it near zero, but you update quickly. But your view is, it's not only so; it's unlikely, but you have to put so much weight of evidence on that because the loss, if it were to happen for the league, would be catastrophic. But why, why can't we say, look, I think it's like one in a thousand that the league would actually do this and pull it off. Well, if that's and, the case, then the, then at this point, we're at about a toss-up. This is what I'm saying, right? This is but what I I'm would saying. actually argue that it's probably less than one in a thousand. Okay, you think it's like one in ten thousand? Maybe one the in ten thousand. this off. Either pull it no. or some insider is pulling much, it off. Much, much less. Much, Sa- much less. Says yes. the Knicks Sa- fan. Says the Knicks fan who's been defending why, the league why, why and the lottery you... for 25 years. I just want to make sure we're clear. That was in 1980-something. Like, okay, 30 years. 30-something years ago. Watched. I mean, they have, I think, I mean, I didn't see it. I don't know if, Eric, you, did you watch the, the, the lottery live? Of course. Of course. No, but so let's, can you let's tell me clear. about the mechanism? No, 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 let's be clear. It's not live on stage. <laughs> what happens is about half an hour before what we see on TV, there are witnesses and representatives of each team in a room. There's a big – think of like the lotto urn. Yeah, yeah. They pull four balls out of mm-hmm. the urn, yeah. of which it gives you a – obviously, there's 10,000 possible numbers you could get out of four balls of an urn. The top team has 25% of the combinations, yep. and then so on. So it's not like they draw a ball out like, oh, it's the Phoenix Suns. No, no that's know, not know, the way it works. It works. Yes, yeah. So all of that is done with witnesses and everything else. Yeah. So Ernst, for, Ernst and Young Ernst, is auditing the whole thing. It's so very f- difficult because it's, no, no, it's, it's 14. To. The number, the balls are numbered 1 through 14, and then and they pull them out. And no one, you have a, 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 a table that matches it, the combinations to, to uh, the, So what to you have, pick. you'd have to go back to the arguments that people have made of lotteries all the time. All right, so... They put certain weighted paint on certain balls. So they're right, more yeah. likely to rise to the top and all this. Come on. Well, the classic it's, thing it's one was in a they million. The, it's more less back, than one in a million. Back in the day, they just pulled cards out of the out of the bingo cage, and the and the, and the conspiracy theory was that they put the Knicks card in the freezer you, so that it was cold. What so I'll, that the person who reached in. What could I will know. remember from this show, you know, we're at Moneyball. What I'll remember from this show is that you guys even think it's one in a thousand or ten thousand. No, 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 no. That's Cade. You're out of your I was mind. Updating. No, I was using it as an example yeah. to work through Fine. the math. Exactly. On your, but the main thing is, I love what you said about okay, yeah, here are the odds, but we've got to we've got to combine that with our prior, and that's why you. That's why in the end you're still skeptical. Because your prior is so strong. And that's just good reasoning, and it's a good framework. It's good science. And it's a very general framework for judgment and decision-making. We have a phone call. Darren from Ohio, welcome to the show. Uh, yes. I, 
I was just curious on your guys' thoughts of how the Moneyball theory could be applied to the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> well, what do you mean? You mean you mean in explaining the Cleveland Browns or how they could use Moneyball? Uh, how they how they could use the Moneyball theory. All right, we can do a little bit on that. Thank you, Darren. Appreciate the question from Ohio. Well, so I'll jump in. I'll I'll say what you've been saying, uh, Cade, for years, which is if you think about what the Cleveland Browns could have done, and it's similar, it relates to our Danny Ainge story. So what has Danny Ainge done? He realizes that the draft is an uncertain process. He stacked a lot of assets because you spread your risk. In other words, you don't need, for example, this may be out of your point, Danny Ainge doesn't need all four next year's number one picks to work out well. He might need one or two of them. Well, he's got four draws from a distribution. Some are better chances than others. What Moneyball might say for the Cleveland Browns is that they could have traded down and gotten maybe five, six number one picks for the two that they had. One could argue that since they're not going to be a great team in the short run, that might have been. I'm saying a Moneyball strategy could have been diversify the risk. There's so much uncertainty with who's going to be qualified trade down maybe at least one of the one or four picks to stockpile a huge amount of assets. That's what I would have done using the theories you know, of Moneyball and also the Mass, the, the Massey-Thaler charts. I would have done that. So can I can I ask you, and my, my question is, um, what is the? can we diagnose the Cleveland Browns problem? And then we can figure out what, what can be used statistically to, to help him. So what has been their problem? Why do they lose year <laughs> after year? That's a fair question. Let me put a little bit more on the table before we talk about that, because the truth of the matter is they've been pursuing a Moneyball approach for years. They they had people in the front office sure. working that way before Haslam, their owner, was listening to them for years before Haslam started listening to them. Then they were kind of in charge for a brief period of time, and then they changed philosophies. So the reason they had the picks that they had this year was because they had pursued exactly what I you're see. talking about. The, the trade down the and trade stockpile. Down, stockpile the picks. They have another another important uh, in general in general about mon- and moneyball is just, you know, evidence-based decision making in, you know, despite whatever conventional wisdom might be. They've had they have more analysts in there than any other football team. I'm certain that that's the case, even though I don't know exactly the numbers mm-hmm. all other teams have. They invested more in an analytics group, and then just for a couple of years they didn't listen to them, and then they listened to them for a little while, and then they have basically, they're basically not listening to them again. So they, more than any other team, they started going down that road, and it's one of the reasons they had the collection of picks they did this year, and they just didn't stay the course. The trouble with Moneyball approaches is that it's just small edges that have to accumulate over time. There's no guarantee, and so you have to... And it's counter-cultural. Um, and so you have to have an owner that's willing to stand up in the face of all the But, in, but in if, you're the, the if you're asking, you know, if, you're, if we were sitting around having a beer and, and someone said, so what's wrong with the Browns? Well, it's very simple. Their recent draft picks have been no good. Is so, that it? Or yes. Is it, yes. I mean, they, they've, they've drafted poorly. Their players, I mean. But you, why is that? Well, you asked me now. For this, now you're asking for a second level question about why <laughs> they draft I mean, poorly. So that could be due to, I mean, there's lots of one could come up with lots of reasons. One is they had statistical models; they weren't good models. That's one possibility. Second, we talk about this. There's just a huge amount of irreducible error that will never go away, and therefore, let's recognize it's a noisy process. Third is they had good statistical models; they could reduce error because they collect good variables, but. Management didn't listen to those. That's another possibility. Fourth, which you've brought up many times, is maybe they drafted good players and they've had bad coaching. 
So it's possible that those players would have been good on other teams. That's, That's another gonna, possible gonna, theory. No, I'm just saying we're coming up with theories. How do you know Those that? are all theories. I mean, here's, here's a question. How would you answer that question? We've looked at that, right? So we've talked about this before. We have talked about it. But no, I, no. I, players I, that move. I mean, you need variation to be able to estimate an effect. So what people tend to do is you look at players who have changed teams, or you look at coaches who have changed teams, and you kind of, you you have to have some variations. You have to have either coaching movement or player movement to try to evaluate it, because otherwise it's the classic endogeneity problem. The coach is drafting players, the coach is coaching the players. It's hard to unconfound the two. So in the absence of those, in the absence of that variation, you you evaluate the process, I think, is what it comes down to. And we don't know. We're not in the building. We don't know how players are developed. But we do know something about how the owner has run that organization, and he's changed GMs every year or 18 months. And that not just from the, – the bigger concern about changing GMs is that the, he he's bouncing back and forth across philosophies. So it's not just that he's – pursuing a course and can't find the right guy to stay on the course, he's changing course left and right and left and right. But and that, that process That makes is, you lost, I think. Yeah. yeah. But Adi, aren't you, aren't, you've always talked about this. Aren't you okay with just for a coach, let's say, aren't you okay with saying, look, there's either Vegas odds or there's predictions by experts, and so we look at win exceedances. We can look, you know, uh, I'll make it up, you know, uh, Doug Peterson was projected to win eight games. Forget the, that yeah. they won the Super Bowl. He won 11 mm-hmm. games. All right, so that's plus three. We can do that over a period of time and see how much someone either exceeds the win probabilities that come out of like the you know the uh, the Bassey models or the, we could look at things like that why wouldn't why wouldn't you just do that why can't we just look at win exceedances a couple of things first of all it doesn't isolate what's the cause right so you could say it's the coach or but you don't know what aspect of the of the system is responsible for this is it the strategy aspect is the drafting aspect of it is the actual turning a, a player into a better player aspect of it that's fair. it doesn't isolate it and second I mean, i've looked at some of this data i think it's still there's so many teams that you're trying to do this with and again you have this this problem there's um post hoc fallacy which in statistics means if you were if you are looking at lots and lots of possible hypotheses simultaneously you don't know whether the one that you found is is uh, statistically significant compared to this background. And finally, there's just a lot of variance. Even at the end of the day, you have so much noise in the system. Either way, I'm glad Darren asked the question. I like your answer, though, by the way. I like the thought that even if you could say it's win exceedances, but, yeah, who gets the credit for that? And it could be lots of causes. One last point. Seven general managers in the last 10 years. Like I said, a year or 18 months, seven general managers in the last 10 years. That is a problem. This is Wharton Moneyball. We're open lines here. You can join the conversation. One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with Adi and Eric. This win exceedances approach that Eric was just talking about is something that people have taken to marvel at what Brad Stevens has done now for two years in a row. But others have looked at this over the years to identify coaches that seem to be outperforming the collection of talent on their roster. So I think this is the kind of approach that we would advocate on the show. And Adi was just saying, yeah, yeah, but there are some issues. So, for example, a few years ago when the Bulls fired Thibodeau, people said, well, he's actually one of the better coaches. It's not his fault. You haven't given him a roster. And Neil Payne and the 538 folks ran an analysis on the NBA coaches with the most wins above preseason statistical expectations over a 35-year period of time. So we can just work with these data to talk about some of the concerns that Audi has with this approach, because as a starting place, I think this is great. Okay, so what you do is, in basketball, it's not that far from baseball these days in that each player 
can be identified as a contribution, how much he's expected to contribute to wins. And so from a preseason collection of talent, they can forecast what the wins should be. Now, of course, it's not perfect, but it's gotten much better. So they go back and do this over 35 years, and then they rack up, you know, which coaches have racked up the most wins above those preseason expectations. They ran this again three years ago when Tom Thibodeau was fired because Thibodeau at the time was number eight of all coaches. Now, you know, you'd want them to run this on an annual basis. They, 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 They ran this cumulative, but on an annual basis would be a little cleaner. Anyway, Greg Popovich, top of the list, with plus 79 Wins I just versus to, expectations. I just want to point out, okay, look at the last column, by the way, which is yeah, the difference the per 82. It is the annualized one. And actually, Tom Thibodeau might be at the top, except for Larry Bird, who coached for, I guess, three seasons in Indiana. But, I mean, he's higher than all of them. Yeah, he's set, he, Thibodeau, over his seasons, which looks like about you know three years there, plus seven and a half wins per season above expectations. Now, Adi, one of the things that jumped out to me is an obvious confound with, say, Popovich is that his his time there, his tenure with the Spurs, overlaps almost perfectly with Tim Duncan's. So it's a little bit hard to know whether it's Popovich's influence or whether Tim Duncan makes other players better on the court, right? Because one of the problems with putting numbers on players' contributions to the win totals, it's not going to do a good job of picking up the interactions. If, if, if a guy makes other guys better... No, it, it doesn't... You can't isolate what's going on. The first... The, the, the thing that I automatically look at when I look at a list like this is how much kind of random variance would you expect to see? And I immediately right. just go and do the, the bare-bones approximations. And one way to, to handle this is, is just take the square root of the number of games, and that's a rough approximation to, to uh, a 95% plus or minus margin of error. Okay. Just what kind of noise you'd expect to see. And most of the top people are way ahead of that. They're, 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 in other words, what you're seeing there is just not chance variation. On the other hand, it's highly correlated in a given season. So the fact that you are plus 10 in one season is not just a bunch of randomness. It's going to probably either be a big number or a small number. It's, it's so, so I don't really know how important these, these values so are. I just want to relate this to, obviously, we're also a business show, but your point is excellent, Cade, because let's say on Friday I'm traveling to a company, to, it's a research project, but I'm working to them on what's the value of their loyalty program. And the key question actually isn't, it, yeah, that's the question. But to answer that, and you'll see how it relates to your point, you have to be able to estimate the baseline of what would happen without it. And that's your point, is that if if the Vegas odds or the expected number was a great baseline, and we could bring in Tim Duncan and his interactions with other players, that would be great. And then any exceedance of that, well, we're done. The problem is... It's non-trivial to come up with a good baseline to say this is what would have happened absent, right. you know, absent Greg Popovich. That's the challenge. It's it's that. Well, it, but if you could answer that question, then you have a data point. It's above some baseline. That, it's the baseline that's the hard problem. Well, there, and then as soon as you have that, there are other hard problems. So Adi raises the point that in this case, we have to. The whole game here is to figure out whether one or two people are truly special. The problem is. You're always going to be able to rank them from top so to bottom. There's, right, al- there's to always going to be someone on the top and always someone on the bottom. The question is, is it reliably different from what you would have expected if this was just noise? Now, there are statistical methods that allow you to say how unlikely these observations are. And especially because we have season to season, we can look at persistence over time. But you need to do one level deeper analysis before you can say it's significant that Greg Popovich is at the top of this list and not just North. Actually, what, it's interesting you bring up persistence because, you know, he's been coaching, it looks like, that 22 years, whatever it is. If he was, let's imagine I told, this is a great point, he has a differential of plus 79. This is one of those questions I always like to ask my students. I'll give you two distributions. Let's imagine 
he was plus 79, but half the seasons he was plus, half he was minus. The other is he's plus 79, but he's basically plus four for 20 or more seasons. Which one would provide you greater evidence that he was doing a great coaching job? And Mm -hmm. so the same aggregate statistic, he's plus 80 roughly over 20 seasons. To me, I'm a meta-analysis guy. I'd take plus four every year for 20 consecutive Mm -hmm. years Mm -hmm. as evidence there's something going on. Do you have any concerns well, about that? I mean, I would just lo- want to look at the distribution of those scores that are underlying well, it. <laughs> the advantage is, is that if, if you use that, that approach is you have the opportunity to not model it at all and use what we call the sign test. Right. And, and 20 years yeah, of right. pluses that's what using the same model, that's, that's a one in a million event. And Therefore, you have you know overwhelming. See, evidence. it always comes back to one half raised to some it's power, raised to the twentieth power in this but, case. And uh, and but if you just have plus or minus with large swings, then then the variances are just they're they're they overwhelm. But we can just spend one minute is. talking about the fact that the Celtics also won the game last night and they're up two nothing <laughs> yeah, on the Cavs. We should have a, we have a talk about that one minute. I mean, this is a uh, this is surprising to everyone. It, Shane's not here to uh, to. That's why he called his, in sick uh, this morning. To defend his that position. must be why he called in. Yeah, sick because this he, he'd be sitting here saying right now that it's still a done deal and the Cavs are going to win. How's know. that possible? I, I know. We all agree. How is that possible? But I mean, they, I mean, they could go even it up in two games in Cleveland. Boston has seemed to have a home court advantage. They've won the every home game in the playoffs yeah. so far. So let's I, see. I just don't know how more LeBron can do. I mean, you know, it's a bad team around him. There's no, here's the, what it is. The Celtics are, you know how many, by the way, I don't know that Matt can tell you uh, how many it ended up with the game. With five minutes left in the fourth quarter, the Celtics had four turnovers. So how do you beat a team? They never give you the ball. There's no fast well, the break. The Cavaliers up. had four. No, the Celtics for the entire oh, game yep. only had four right, turnovers right. midway through the fourth quarter. So they don't turn the ball over. So there's going to be no fast break points. They all get back on defense. You're going to. Ha- they're all fast. Nobody on Cleveland besides LeBron can create his own shot. So it's just every shot clock. You notice Cleveland is shooting with four, five, or less seconds left on the clock. I just, I'm amazed. Actually, I'm more impressed now with the Sixers. As the longer yeah. this series goes, I'm thinking, man, the Sixers were close. We were can, really close. Can you close. explain <laughs> to me how it was that the Sixers were so mediocre, if you will, throughout the whole season and, and looked so impressive in the... The Sixers? They weren't that Sixers, mediocre. Not Sixers, not Sixers. I mean the Celtics. The Celtics were the two seed in the, in yeah, the East. but they were losing a lot at the end. And but it was because of injuries. They the even smart, had even smart went out in the last two weeks of the two, two uh, three weeks. Of the oh season. yeah, let's be clear. There was a period where it looked obvious. They're not that at the full Celtics, strength now. I know the Celt- well, they're full strength except for Haywood and Irving. It looked pretty clear that they were going to be the one seed. Hey it, guys, before we hit the bottom of the hour, I want to take this last call, and not least because it's a baseball question. I'm curious, you guys can register on Tom from California. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Um, yeah, so I was watching the Giants game on Sunday, and the announcers were going through some baseball stats. And they had figured out that the uh, the Giants and the Rangers lead the MLB in both double plays turned and airs. So I had some theories on it, but I wanted to kind of hear you guys' take on it. It's a good it's a good riddle for my baseball guys here. They lead the league in both double plays turned and in errors. Well, the obvious thing is is that the, the driver is opportunities, and so the more opportunities for ground balls. And Not again, your theory that we've talked that I I hugged you about a few weeks ago. <laughs> Everything in statistics comes down to sample size right. and rates. So, so basically, if you have if the if you have a large n, they're going to have the largest number. So they may not have the har- largest percentage of of, of uh, plays that turn into double plays, but they probably have the largest opportunities. So they also have the largest opportunities for errors. So that's what would be my answer. Well, another thing it also means is there must be a lot of guys on base. That's right. So that means it's probably not. I mean, it's a 
It's not a, I'd rather have a lead the league in double plays turned when there's opportunities, but not actually when there's double plays right. turned. They're probably walking a lot of people, a lot of batters on first, a lot of batters on first and second. Yeah, you got to get them to have double plays. With, with less than and two a, outs. And a lot of balls are in play if they're making <laughs> That's errors, right? right? So fewer strikeouts. Right. All right. Ah, so see? We, <laughs> well done, well done, well done. <laughs> we need to jump away from break. Tom, thanks for that phone call. Appreciate your listening. Call back again in the future. So that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. You can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton That's one 844 You can also email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can add us on Twitter. At W Moneyball is our handle up there, at W Moneyball. We follow all of our guests. You can send us over-under questions. You can mock us. You can comment. You can you can follow sports analytics. Call at, like Darren and Tom did in that first half hour. We had two calls in the first half hour. We're always happy to hear from you guys. In the next half hour, we haven't talked quite enough about baseball. We got a little bit there at the end, but my boys here always want some baseball, so I think it's time for a call to the bullpen. Here comes the skipper on his way to the mound. That's going to be all for his starter this afternoon. Einstein said it best. It's great to have an open mind, but you don't want it so open that your brains fall out. Your mind is your master, and your body is your servant. When you can get your mind to train your body at that level, now you're mastering your mind to go with it. On the old one count, Chipper Jones at 192. If you let Chipper hit the first pitch against you, cut your arm off and eat it. In God we trust, all others must have data. Wharton Moneyball's Call to the Bullpen with Rick Peterson. Rick, good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. We're doing well. Glad to all glad right, to hear from you. Right. I think I've right. missed you earlier in the season. My first chance to talk to you in the 2018 baseball season. How's it been treating you? Yeah, it's been like flying by, huh? We're already about 25 percent through the season, right? Any any teams jump out to you so far? Anybody you're especially paying attention to? Um, no, not necessarily. I mean, I I think you see some surprises with the Dodgers, like really struggling, like they have been, but. You know, they've been just decimated with injuries. Right. Like, just off the charts. I mean, they got Rue with the groin injury. You know, Seager's got a Tommy John. You know, they got Urias, who's had shoulder surgery. You know, Turner just came back, which was, like, huge for them. Right, right, right. Although it didn't really work out last night. And then, of course, Kershaw, you know, this. I mean, he's had some injuries, but they've all been back. But this is his first arm injury. Right. You know, that is sideline, which is really concerning. You know, and Pew has always had some, you know, hip, foot type of lower extremity issues. Rick, um, let me let me jump on that Kershaw news. Uh, as a former pitching mm-hmm. coach, how how do you think about bringing guys off of the DL? So we've got a couple of high profile guys on the DL. Kershaw, obviously, but Bumgarner hasn't pitched yet this year, and we should see him relatively soon. How do you think about? You know, it's one thing to get, work with a guy in the off season. This is different. It's it's in season. You want him back in the lineup, but. He may not be healthy. Can you tell us about that process? Well, you know what? It's really no different than spring training, especially with the starting pitcher. I mean, the reason spring training lasts so long is so starting pitchers can get to their 100-pitch count before spring training is over, basically. So, so they get extended so that they typically could pitch six or seven innings, but the sabermetric people will only let them go four anymore. <laughs> You know, from that standpoint, but with a starting pitcher, you really can't cheat the process. So that, you know, once they're ready to actually, like, get on the mound in the game, their first outing would be two innings typically, which is about 30, 35 pitches. 
and then you have four days rest, and then you have three innings, and then you have four days rest, and then you have four innings at 60-plus pitches, and then you have four days rest, and then you get to 75 pitches. So it, it's basically about a four-and-a-half-week process. That's that's once you get on the mound to simulate a game or, or to pitch a game. Yeah. You know, there's just, there's just no way around it. Um, Rick, because, I've often wondered what what the psychology is for the player. How often do you see guys struggle with with fear, essentially, of getting injured again? Well, here's what happens in that in that rehab process. You know, the rehab process, especially if, if it's an arm issue, um, it's much different if it's a lower extremity issue. But in, in arm issue, typically, as you start to come back. Your, the pitcher's mind is, is literally almost like the color analyst. Like he'll make a pitch and go like, oh, that one felt good. Yeah, my shoulder really felt good right there. Uh-huh. You know, he throws the next pitch. It's like, okay, that was nice. Okay, this is really coming along. Ball's coming out of my hand. Good. And then before you know it, it's like, all right, I've given up three or four runs. It's like, are, are you – your mind isn't even competing in the game yet. You're, you're just like – Checking out how your body parts are feeling after every pitch, right? And then, and then that that last mental hurdle is basically okay. Get in the box, you're out. I'm sending you back to the dugout. That's the final stage of a rehab, and you really have to address it with the pitcher because I have I've had many pitchers come back early in my career when I didn't really understand, you know, the mind so to speak of a rehab. Uh, pitcher, mm-hmm. and, and and here they are into their second or third outing into the big leagues, and they're getting their brains beat in, and it's like, hey, I really feel fine. I feel great. I'm like, okay. Then I finally realized, well, you're not even playing the game right now. You're, you're just you're, you're just wondering how your body feels, you know. So it, it's really critical to address, you know, literally the mind of that rehab pitcher coming back to make sure that when he's ready to take the mound. Uh, because you, you see these, look at these seasons over the last, like, say, five or six, seven years. You, you, here we are, 25% into the season, you know, 40-some games into it. And how many pennant races come down to the last day of the season? And and so you, this mindset that it's going to be the last day of the season in October or, or in September or early October when the reality of it is the last day of the season, you know, may be May 16th. And we need to really focus on this game. And it's so hard to get across. And the people that have really influenced my career early on in my career made it very clear that, that okay, in the course of a major league season, and this is really up to sabermetric minds alley, is that you roughly have 22,500 plus or minus pitches in the course of a season, which are covering 1,450 plus plus or minus innings in the course of that season. And you don't know what what pitch is going to be the difference whether we make it to the postseason or what pitch is going to be the difference that we didn't. And every single one of those 22,500 pitches are just they're so precious and they're so vital. So, and, Rick, this is yeah, this is Eric Bradley. Let me ask you a quick question following up on that. So mm-hmm. we've talked about – I'm so shocked off over the years we've had you here on Wharton Money, but we haven't asked you this question. But – Related to a pitcher, and it relates to Cade's question about pitchers coming back from injury. Let's imagine a pitcher when you're they're warming up during a game says, uh, "Coach, I got my fastball today. Don't have my slider. My curveball doesn't seem to be warm. Doesn't seem to be doing well. 
How many different plans do you have for a game, and can analytics actually play a role to say, look, this was going to be our game plan if, I'll make it up, if Kershaw had his four best pitches today, but today he's only got two. So we're going to switch our game plan. How does the warm-up period relate to in-game, and how does analytics, can analytics play a role in that? Well, as the game unfolds, analytics plays a huge role in it. The warm-up routine for a pitcher is totally disconnected to the outcome of that game. Totally disconnected. I mean, because how you feel and, and the stuff that you have in the bullpen is totally unrelated to the stuff that you're going to have in a game. But basically, when you look at the analytics and, and the choices that you have as you have a GPS to go through the opposing team's lineup and each individual hitter in that lineup, you know, basically what it comes down to, every single pitch, every single count in that pit, in that sequence, you have basically two or three really good choices, depending on how what stuff you have that particular day. So, for example, maybe the best selection at this particular time is your slider, but let's say you don't have a feel for your slider that day. Well, that's not a choice. We're not calling that selection just because that's a great selection, but if you don't have it, it's just kind of like, you know, you go to your favorite restaurant, and it's like, you know, okay, they're out of your favorite food. Right. I just want to follow right. up, Rick. I just want to follow up here. I just want to make sure I'm hearing this because this seems strange to me. Um, but you obviously have years of evidence of this. What's the evidence that how you warm up in the bullpen is not related to how you do in the game? I'm just saying that's a shocking thing to me if that's true. So how how is it just your opinion, or have you seen studies on this, or is it just it's just true? Well, I mean, I don't know if you can ever get a study because you probably don't have TrackMan data, you know, in the bullpen as your pitcher is warming up that you actually could, like, compare vertical and, and horizontal movement and spin rates and so on down the line. But hold on a second, Rick. This is Adi. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I've noticed from sitting off and sitting with, with scouts and you know, lifetime baseball players like yourself is that they, they have an eye and they can watch things that I could never see. And the catcher and the bullpen co- coaches must know when things are not right. Well, yes, but, but so let me give you. I mean, here, here's the best example I could use. When Pedro Martinez came over to the to the Mets, so you know, basically, you're as as a teacher, you're 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 now a student of Pedro Martinez. I, I want to learn as much as I can about Pedro so that I can give him feedback during the course. No, no different than a caddy in the course of, of a. You know, of a PGA event, very, very similar. The, the, the pitching coach is very similar to a caddy. Pedro many times would warm up in the game, this pregame warm up, and not throw one curveball. He didn't throw one curveball in the bullpen. The first hitter of the game, an 0-2 count. Here comes a curveball from hell. I'm like going, Jesus Christ! He never even threw one in the bullpen. I mean, well, I can't, I can't maybe when you're Pedro, you have that ability to, to pull that off. I'm going to ask you a hypothetical question. And, I mean, a real question, but, but I want to know in the background. So the Yankees were 6-6, six and six, tied 6-6 six, six against the Oakland, and they bring in Chapman. Chapman, of course, throws 101 to 103. He's mm-hmm. barely hitting 96, and he's way off the plate. And I'm watching this game, and I'm looking at it and saying, he's terrible. Get him out of there. And they don't. And from some miracle, including a tag out at the home plate, the Yankees survived that inning. But I'm thinking, where's the pitching coach saying, where's the manager saying, we've made a disastrous move. Chapman is not Chapman. He's 5% down on his velocity. He can't find his his home home plate. We've walked the first two batters. Get him out of there now before this game is over. Am I just totally off the mark here? 
No, you're not totally off the mark because you're bringing it up to something totally different than what the first original question was. You're talking about the feel for your secondary stuff in the bullpen. When your velocity is down 5%, that's a total different scenario. Now you're saying, now the antennas go up and say, wait a second, something's not right here. Something's not right. So if you're, because typically when pitchers say, you know what, I didn't have my best stuff today, and then you look at the velocity, the velocity is typically the same. It's always the same. Or he says, like, man, I feel great today. I feel like the ball is, like, really coming out of my hand. Really? It's the same. The same. <laughs> it's, it's the same. You know, and, and so one of the things that you talk to the mind of a pitcher is the fact that don't trick yourself into thinking, like, how great you feel. Or some days you feel like, God, I just feel sluggish today. I just don't have it. Well, with the travel schedule and the kind of schedule that you have in Major League Baseball with rain delays and everything else going on, double headers, like, you, you may feel you're going to feel sluggish many times. You know, for a starting pitcher to have 33, 32 starts or 33 starts in the course of a season, Tom Glavin said this all the time. Out of those 32, 33 starts, if I, if I feel like I have my A game, if I feel like I have my A game, like five or six starts, that's like an A plus year. Wow. Because I, I, I got to figure out how to get through a game with my C, my C or my C minus C plus game. Wow. That's, that, that's meaning, like, like, for example, when you look at, like, Jason Day won a tournament, not this past week, but the week before. He, he, his game was totally off. It was terrible. He, he, terrible. He, he, yeah, he scrambled his brains out to win that tournament. That, that's a great example of what the first question was about you don't have your great stuff in the bullpen. But if your velocity is down 5%, you start to say, wait a second, something's going on here. And then you start to say, like, all right, whatever dings he has in his body – you start with that, you know, like let's say Kershaw with like bicep tendonitis. Let's say he comes back and now as he goes out to start a game and he's throwing 88 miles an hour, you're like going, wait a second, something's way off here. Right, so right, you, right, this, right. This is where that's different than, you know, I don't really have the feel for my slider today. You know, my changeup really doesn't, doesn't feel comfortable. I'm not getting a great finish on my changeup today. And TrackMan data will give you that feedback immediately. If you can get it, and, and I don't think that you can get it in game in the dugout, you probably can get it in between innings. Right, um, Rick. We're talking to Rick Peterson. Mm-hmm. He is longtime pitching coach for the Mets, A's, Brewers, and Orioles. Rick, speaking of bodies being dinged, pitchers get dinged batting these days. Uh, and Jack Brom, Jack Grom, one of the mm-hmm. best in the leagues, coming off an injury he suffered from swinging. How, how did you think about, and how should pitchers think about? their job at the plate because the Mets are thinking about telling this guy not to even swing, just going to take the out because they don't want to risk the injury. Well, it's a real dilemma because when you take a look at the offensive production for, for your pitchers, and it's primarily starting pitchers, relief pitchers get very few at-bats in the course of a season. But your, start, your starting pitchers, and, and we addressed that when I was with the Mets um, after my second year to say, listen, this is a priority. You know, you, you guys, here's the X amount of at-bats that you're going to have in the course of a season. So when you look at like 162 games and the average, you know, somewhere at least an average of two, probably sometimes three at bats a game. So you're taking a look at, you know, somewhere around probably 400, 450 at bats in the course of the year for your for your starting pitchers. It's critical that they're that they're productive, that they can get a base hit once in a while, that they can put a ball in play, that they can move a runner up, and that, and that, and especially that they can bunt. 
because the worst thing that you can have to do with a starting pitcher who's pitching a good game, it, it, and, and you're in the sixth inning, and we need him to lay down a bunt, and he and he and he's an awful bunter. You may have to pinch hit, and it's like, hey, you're out of the game. You're out of the game because you can't handle the bat. The real issue that you're talking about with the Grom, and it's a major red flag as you move forward with Otani, is the fact that it's the right-hand pitcher that hits left-handed and the left-hand pitcher that hits right-handed. And, and that's a Bumgarner, and that's a DeGrom, that's an Otani. Because when you take a look at, like, Conforto had an arm surgery last year, he hurt his right arm he, and by by swinging and missing. And that's what happened to DeGrom. He hurt, oh, I see. He, he hurt his right elbow by swinging and missing. So, so based on that, they're like saying, geez, maybe we don't even swing. Because we can't afford it's, it's not the swing that you make contact that, that's a potential injury. It's the swing and miss, especially if you're a good hitter like a Degrom is. He's got a little bit of power. You can hit a ball out of the ballpark. But Otani consistently swinging and swinging and swinging because he's got to prepare his offensive game. You know the danger for Otani is the fact that you get some of these swings and misses with the kind of power that he can generate. You're putting a lot of uh, on, on a lot of stress on on that right arm and in right particular because because he's a because he's batting on the opposite side that he throws that right. that he's a, he's a right hand hitter and he's got a left hand a left hand batter so his right his right arm is it's the follow through arm yeah it's the follow through arm yeah and, and and that's the arm that, that that's what happened to the ground so it is it's a real concern if you're as i said a left hand a left-hand pitcher and bat right-handed like a Bumgarner or a right-hand pitcher and bat left-handed so let's, like a, a Otani or DeGrom. But I, I'm actually thinking that maybe someone like Otani, who is really, really strong and ready and to swing the bat repeatedly, is in a much better position than a pitcher who is un, generally underprepared and therefore well, has, has muscular imbalances, which can lead to, uh, lead to strains. That's a great point, but Conforto, Conforto played in the All-Star game. So, I mean, you're talking about a guy. You know, an everyday player who played, who started in the All Star or played in the All Star game, and and he 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 was vulnerable to arm surgery by swinging and missing. So, Rick, let me ask so, you more of an aggregate concern question. Being a Yankee fan here, I was just looking mm-hmm. at the stats for the season. When, and Kate asked you in the show start when we started with you, any teams catch your eye? Yankees obviously are playing phenomenally. They're playing 700 ball. Obviously, yeah. that would translate to 112 wins. But if you go just below the surface right now, um, while they are the number one team in scoring in the MLB, which is great, they're only the 10th best in pitching. Can you just outslug the other team for an entire season? If the Yankees end up 10th in pitching, can they win the World Series? Of course they can, and and really what it comes down to, it's not the overall aggregate of, of where your pitching finishes in the course of the season. It's like you, so, if you if you pull out Severino, and you know you pull out. Where are you going next, there, bud? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, that's my question. That's, where are you going after? I mean, you, you, I guess you want Sabathia starting for you Sabathia. in the playoff. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing: you get into a five-game series. Severino's pitching twice. You know, you get into a seven-game series, Severino's pitching three times. Um, if you get into a one-game series playoff, Severino's pitching once. You know, so you know when you take a look at that, yeah, you're you're right. But you know, we haven't hit the we haven't hit the trade deadline yet, so we'll see where we're going with that. Uh, so you know, you're, you are you are picking you are recommending that the Yankees pick up the starting pitcher. Well, at, at this particular time, but let's see what unfolds. I mean, you know, I I really like Montgomery a lot. And I don't know if he can turn into what I think he possibly can be, but I think he's got a shot to be. Um, and if you take a look at media, just average stuff 
or a left-hand pitcher in the postseason, that, that bodes well, that bodes very well in the postseason. Very well. And why that is, I don't really have an answer. I don't know if sabermetrically you can quantify it other than you see it consistently. Like you see mediocre left-handed stuff pitchers do really well in the postseason. Hey, um, hey, Rick, let me jump in real quick because we're down to just a couple of minutes, and I want to ask you about the the a pitcher with with the defense playing a big shift behind him. There was an extreme example this past week where mm-hmm. the Astros pitching Gallo had six guys on the right. on down the right side of the field. How much does the pitcher's strategy at the uh, how he pitches that guy contribute to a team's ability to do that? It has a big factor because the only way that you can shift your defensive players and, and do it, you have two issues. One, you're just looking at total probability of, of where this guy actually hits the right, baseball. Right. And then, then two, you're looking at the, the probability of where he hits the baseball on a specific selection and location of a pitch. So if the pitcher really has plus location and he can make consistent quality pitches, right. I mean, that back back before Sabermetrics was even involved, this is like in the mid-'80s, like Rick Rochel. I was, I was with, with Rick Rochel and Rick Roden and a lot of these guys with the Pirates. But Rick Rochel would, would like literally move over his shortstop and say, hey, you know, move over like a couple steps right here. Uh-huh. I'm going to get you a ground ball right here. And he knew that if he threw his two-seamer on the outer half, the, the probability that this batter is going to hit it there. I mean, there, there's that intuitive. And he had the control to do that. He had the control to do right. that. So okay. there's, there's that. There's that kind of intuitive sabermetric mind of, of players. I had a really great talk with Keith Hernandez the other day as his new book just came out, and I was at a function um, that he was talking about his book. And, you know, I mean, when you take a look at, like, how he prepared for a series, he, not much different than how people prepare today. The difference is we have the data, right? And 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 if you go back and look at, you know, when he probably if you go back and look at the data of some of the at bats that he talked about or how he prepared, my guess would be sabermetrically he's probably his mind was probably right right into that, what that's neat. That, that's neat. One more reason the Mets were so good back in the day. Rick, thanks for joining with us today. We really really enjoyed having you. Always a pleasure, guys. All right. All right. Stay tuned. You bet. Longtime Major League Pitching Coach Rick Peterson. He's with us throughout the baseball season here on Wharton Moneyball. That's half the show. We still have half to go. Come back and join us after break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live here from the Huntsman Hall building on University of Pennsylvania's campus. You can join the conversation, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow. Shane Jensen is out this morning. Under the weather, he will be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. You can join the conversation. You can also give us an email. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. Or follow us on Twitter at WMoneyball. You can send us questions, comments, over-unders on our Twitter account. You can also, the, the phone number's posted up there if you want to remember how to ring us. The phone number can be found at WMoneyball. Just off the phone with Rick Peterson on our Call the Bullpen segment. Our guys here, our Yankee fans, are worked up about Chapman's performance the other night. You guys are a little concerned about 
his being off, and maybe that means something. Maybe he's hurt. Well, we were very concerned that, that that's the problem because the drop in velocity is it seems to me is very far. I mean, he t- tends to throw within one mile per hour of each other in every pitch. So if you take that as the the standard deviation, when he's down from 100, 101, 102 to 96, 96, 96, right. you're but, thinking that's just a, a really large drop wanna, and there must be a cost. But I want to build on a related question we also discussed with Rick Peterson. It's not like I don't believe he was throwing 103 in the bullpen and he came out to the mound and is throwing 96. Couldn't you have assessed this in the bullpen and potentially said, you know, called the the dugout and said, look, Chapman's a no-go today. For whatever reason, he's throwing 96. You've got to be able to know that. You must, but I think what Rick was telling us is that pitchers, particularly star ones, and he told the story of Pedro, they don't use the bullpen to show the coaches and staff they have it. They use it for their own warm-up purposes, and it's uncorrelated so with we, what they well, do we on the field. we haven't talked about it. It's a great question. We're gonna, I'm putting in my mental notes to ask Rick next time. So I just want to know, you're suggesting that a pitcher that throws even 98, 99, 100, 103 like Chapman doesn't, it do, it doesn't do it in the bullpen. That's right. Uh, by choice, by design. They're not asked to. They're not asked I to show what they're stuck. shocking All to right. believe. We need to learn more about There bull, we go. Bull we pen, have a lot of information. <laughs> it's good. All right. In the next half hour, we are delighted to welcome back to the show Michael Lopez. Michael, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Where are you calling in from this morning? I'm at my office at Skidmore College. All right. So Michael's an assistant prof, a statistics prof up there at Skidmore. He has a Ph.D. in biostats from Brown University after doing a master's at UMass Amherst and a B.A. in math at Bates, Fabulous Bates College in Maine. Um, Michael can be found in a number of places. He has a website called Stats by Lopez, Stats by Lopez. You can also get him on Twitter, his account up there. Oh, I just dropped it. Michael, what's your account on Twitter? Also Stats by Lopez. Also Stats by, not the also, it is, at Stats by Lopez. Anyway, Michael's one of our favorite followers in sports analytics. He's always kicking out something interesting. Before we get into some of those interesting studies, can you give us a little bit on how you blend your academic life with your sports analytics life? You, you are, I'm kind of envious of how prolific you are in kicking out these analyses, and yet you have a full-time job. <laughs> um, yeah, I just too many questions to answer. You know, I, I, too many sports are on, and I like them all. And so when, whenever there's a question, I, I try and answer it. You know, I'm fortunate to be at an institution that, that values um, – whatever research that I'm churning out. And so mm-hmm. um, if it ends up being sports research, great. Um, I also do some stuff in public health. Uh, but um, the sports stuff tends to get a little bit more uh, widely read. So there's sometimes a draw to do that. Mm-hmm. What What do you think is your advantage as a biostatistician in the world of sports analytics? What does that? How does that prepare you uniquely? So I think in, with, with biostats, we spent a little bit more time than maybe we would in a theoretical stats program in terms of interpreting data and working with data, and uh, there's sort of a large priority to, to communication and collaboration. And hmm. so most of my graduate school was sort of spent working with collaborators or working on data projects, and I think that sort of set me up so that once I sort of set out to do a lot of it on my own, maybe I was a little bit more efficient with my time um, and maybe a little bit more of a deeper understanding about uh, what tools might be appropriate for what data. Hmm. So, Michael, this is Eric Brown. Just a quick personal question. Were you, did you work with Constantine Gatsonis when you were at Brown? Sure. Uh, we didn't work on any projects specifically together, but yeah, I mean, he's the sort of the head honcho there. And so. The only reason I think he was on my dissertation committee, and I saw it relates to Cade's <laughs> question that you were doing causal inference work. So, how does your work in that your dissertation in causal inference make you think about, you know, I'm going to study sports, but I really want to understand 
if if possible, the causal mechanism of something as opposed to saying, you know what, this is correlated with this. Does that influence how you think about, if you'd like, stats by Lopez? Yeah, so I think a lot of it plays into uh, what study designs, I think, are, are, are sort of clever and, and sort of where, what questions you can answer um, and what questions maybe you can, you can sort of answer, but you can't really get as far as you want. Um, and, and so sports data is observational. And we, we can't randomize teams to make decisions or to, to call plays in certain ways. Um, I mean, at least I can't in my, my position at Skidmore. Um, so because we don't have that sort of randomized data, most of what we're looking at is observational. And with observational data, it's really tricky to sort of untangle um, sort of what is the, what is the cause of, of, a certain, of a certain play call or of a certain behavior on some type of outcome. And so the more you learn about causal inference, the, the more sort of uh, – you're sort of prepared to deal with some of those situations or to come up with clever ways of, of thinking about um, questions that, that maybe you can ask that you can sort of mimic randomized designs without actually doing the randomization yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you tried to apply that to recently that caught our eye is the draft analysis. You published this actually in 2017, but it got some attention again here in 2018, trying to figure out whether teams are actually good at this thing and then more generally whether the league – improves over time. So you did a provocative look at MLB, NBA, NFL, and NHL. We've just come through the NFL draft. We've just seen the lottery for the NBA draft. Those two both look like worlds in which the leagues haven't gotten much better over time. Is that a fair conclusion from your analysis? Yeah. I mean, I set out with the question of, of we see in the media all these different reports about sort of the asinine questions that that team evaluators are, are asking players in efforts to, to try and to try and pick the best players. And it would sort of pay off if the league has gotten better at drafting. You know, certainly three or four decades ago, they weren't, there wasn't this attention paid to the draft. And so the question is, is sort of if we can try and assess our leagues getting better at drafting, then maybe all this effort is worth it. Uh, it, it turns out in the NBA and, and NFL, it doesn't look like teams are any better at drafting than maybe they were three or four decades ago. The NBA is a little bit tricky because they've always they've always been really good at drafting. And so maybe they've already reached that sort of upper bound where um, the, the first player is almost always better than the 10th player. And so uh, it, it's hard to really improve on that when most years that's going to be the case. Yeah, but you have to you look know, at the, the NBA. This is Adi. Uh, and uh, 1 through 60, which is what you've done this over, it's not like you're going all the way to the end of the draft in baseball or, or, or um, in hockey, but in, in NBA, that's the end. 60, right. that's, that's the end. So you've got the full range of variants, while in the other sports, 1 through 60 is really just the top slice. So whenever you do a limited uh, um, slice of the data and you cut down on variants, correlation just goes down. So NBA is, is much higher than the others typically, and it's at the top, and there isn't much room to go because you've you got the full, the full help, length. Help me with that because I don't, I don't have that. You guys, I'm talking to three stats profs at this point. I don't have that <laughs> intuition. My sense is that the correlations he's looking at base, his basic measure here is the correlation between where a guy is drafted That's right. and then how he performs long term. So in the, in the NBA, it's the highest, and it, in the NBA, it's highest. It's pushing point six, where you know NHL is getting there now, but historically hasn't been there. And MLB is down, probably average across all the years is like point two, but it's growing. And NFL is just kind of stuck in the in the thirties. So, but this is the correlation between where they're drafted and how they perform. My my understanding is that, and I would have expected that that correlation is weakest in the at the end of the draft. 
So yeah, well, it's the full range. So if you did, so let me just put this put this out there. If you looked at not just the top sixty, but all the picks in the NFL, you'd have a much higher correlation. So two hundred and fifty. Yeah, that's right. And rank rank correlate the value. Why is it going to go? Why is the correlation? Because there's go much up? more variance to explain. But we know the variance is. We know the correlation in round six is going to be lower than the correlation in round one. Ex ante, well, I'm sure that's true. But if you true. look at the entire thing, that's what's going to happen. Okay, so let me give you, help, let me, help me with so the intuition Michael, for I'll that. give you the intuition. And Michael, please jump in here if you disagree. This is the classic thing, you know, since I was a student of Don Rubin, he posted, pitched, he uh, published a paper in the early 70s that showed this. Let's imagine we look at Skidmore College, great institution. By the way, my niece goes there. Let's imagine we take a the look at the correlation between someone's GPA and SAT scores at Skidmore College. There's almost no correlation. Now, why is that true? Because we're only looking at a tiny slice of the distribution of people that can get into Skidmore College. So this is the classic. If you think about a bivariate scatter of draft order and performance, and you only slice and look at the top of it, that's Adi's point, you diminish the correlation. Is that your intuition as well? Yeah, I think I think so. And so I think that certainly changes some of the, the perceptions of, of how much you can rank these leagues. I mean, I, I also have done this based on overall pick percentile and done this based on first round only. So there, there are other ways to look at it that the findings change some. Um, but certainly if you, were to, if you were to add in the um, remaining NFL picks, the, the rank correlation would, would, would go up a little bit, mostly because you know in, in expectation that the first round picks are better than the seventh round picks. And so when you, when you get all that together, it's going to, to sort of slightly increase that. Okay, so that, that all, thank you guys for the little reminder slash uh, tutorial there. How would you just char- characterize it? We've just seen the lottery for the NBA draft. That was last night. Um, how would you characterize in general the NBA draft versus the NFL? I get this kind of question all the time. Well, so the, if, you, if you were to sort of overlay the, the draft curves, and, and there are different ways you can do draft curves based on uh, average pick value or based on likelihood of getting a superstar, however you want to, to make your draft curve, uh, the NBA draft curve is much deeper, so there's a much higher value in, in, in getting a top pick. And even if you account for the fact that there's a lottery, and so if you assign the, the finishing with the worst record as, as a 30% probability of the, of the first pick and a 20% probability of the second pick, even if you assign those values, the, the, the curve for, for finishing with the worst record is, is still, it's, it's still a much more valuable thing to do in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And then once you add in the fact that in the NFL, if you do get that top pick, you have a bunch of other teams that you can can probably trade back with that will give you even more value than um, you know. There, there's sort of a little bit of, of a little bit of both of those things that you have to consider. Mm-hmm. But certainly, in terms of if you're going to pick a player, you would want to be doing it first in the NBA, and that's a little bit more valuable than the NFL. In the other two sports we haven't been talking about, baseball and hockey, we see big improvements over time, according to your analysis. So, baseball, 1970, they, the correlation is like. Point one, and it's grown to about point three over the subsequent 40, 40 years. NHL has grown from point four to point six five, or something like that, over thirty years. What what accounts for those that increase? And our our, our we we've kind of speculated that there are structural things that have changed this. It seems unlikely that two sports would be kind of treading water while two other sports were getting dramatically better at identifying talent. Yeah, certainly in, in baseball, there, there's a structural change which was somewhere in the early. 2000s, where uh, the league changed its, its draft structure with respect to uh, the salary that players could be paid. And so in the early 2000s, it wasn't uncommon for the top players to go later in the first round, which was when the Yankees or Red Sox could pony up a lot of money for them. And these players would say, listen, I'm not going to go uh, to the Pirates or something like that. 
um, or I'm not going to go to the Rays, but I'll go to the Red Sox or Yankees if they pay me $3 million. Mm. So you've actually got the better players going later in the draft, Interesting. Uh, mostly because they could be paid there. Once the league got rid of that, and I don't know the exact year, but it was somewhere in the early 2000s, which is roughly corresponds with, with some of the, the jump that we're seeing, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, those players got drafted first if they were going to be playing. Um, if they weren't going to be playing, they'd go to college and they wouldn't be drafted. And so because of that, I think there's a, that, that's probably partially responsible in baseball. So okay. I actually speculated when I saw this the first time is that since the 1970s, the, the role of college has played an enormous – has changed in, in dramatically in baseball. So back in the 1970s, I don't know what the actual numbers are, but I would guess very few of the drafted players were actually coming out of college. But by the time you got to more recent years, the, the, currently in the top couple of rounds, it's actually the majority come from college, and they're just much more predictable. So right. that's the back in 1970. You just didn't really know what you were getting because they were they were children by any by any measure, <laughs> and therefore correlations were low. And by the time you're looking at uh, at, at the, more recently, you you know you're getting a star player when he's coming out of college. Yeah, certainly the 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 types of players you're selecting would would play a, a play have an impact on this. Michael, we're talking to Michael Lopez. He is stats prof at Skidmore College, and he blogs at Stats by Lopez. He also tweets at Stats by Lopez. He's a great follow in the world of sports analytics. We're talking about a work he published a year ago, but got some more attention in the past year, evaluating the evaluators, essentially, looking at drafts across the different sports. We tweeted that article on our own account. You can see the visual we're, we're going through up there. NHL. NHL floated along, kind of treading water like the other sports, and then spiked in the last, I don't know, 15 years or so? Is there something structural there? I think they changed the number of rounds, did they not? Yes, that's true. It might be the number of rounds. I'm only looking at the first 60 picks here. Um, I don't don't know if that would have a big impact on it. The NHL was a little surprising. Um, I have some theories. Um, One is that there there was sort of a a push to draft a lot of European players and Russian players, in the, the mid-90s and early 2000s, and then that changed. Um, those players can play in their own um, countries now and, and have cheaper taxes and the, the salaries are right. decent. Right. And so it, it, that might play a, somewhat of a role if those players were maybe a little bit less predictable mm-hmm. in terms of their performance. Mm-hmm. It could also have to do not exactly with the, the how well the players are playing, but also when they're allocated to spots, if there's more pressure on coaches now. They feel like they have to, to play certain players more often, and those early players continue to get more opportunities now, maybe more than they would have um, a couple decades ago. It's not actually that they're drafting better. It's just more that they're allocating <laughs> right. their, their playing time Interesting. to the, the better players. There actually, there is a paper from years ago, Colin Kammer, uh Roberto Weber, his student, and Colin Kammer ran a paper on the that effect you're talking about, where they, the coaches overplay, or general managers for all we know, overinvest in players as a function of where they were drafted. So those top picks get more chances. Now, my fellow Bayesians here are going to say, well, they should get better chances. We had stronger priors. <laughs> but uh, anyway, Cameron Weber is an interesting analysis on that. Michael, you've done other work, of course. You're always kicking something out. Something that we've been talking about a little bit around here is your umpire analysis recently. Can you tell us what you did and what you found there? Sure. So I was, you know, like a lot of this stuff, it just starts by watching games or whatever. And it was a, a game two summers ago. Uh, Anthony Rizzo of the Cubs was up with the bases loaded in the bottom of the 10th inning. And I forget who the pitcher was for the Cardinals, but it was a 3-1 count. And the pitch crossed the outside edge of the plate. And it was pretty clearly a strike. A strike would have made a 3-2 and the game continues. Rizzo took the pitch, and the umpire actually called a, a walk or called the ball, and then so Rizzo walked. The bases were loaded, 
So in the bottom of the 10th inning, there, there's a bases loaded walk. The game was tied. The game ends. And the it was sort of like, oh, okay, you know, whatever, we move on. And the, But I was a little bit more curious given that in, in that situation, the umpire gets to go home. Um, everybody gets to go home because <laughs> the game ended. And if the umpire had called a, a ball, well, um, it goes to a 3-2 count. There's a chance that Rizzo gets out. And then everybody has to stay there and play another extra inning. And the way baseball works is that not only when you go to another extra inning, you might be going to three or four or five more extra innings, given that that runs are a little bit more rare in, in baseball. And whereas in maybe a sport like basketball or football, overtime generally ends within, um, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily drag on forever. Right. Uh, <clears throat> so the question was whether or not uh, the, the sort of incentive to end the game was impacting how umpires call balls and strikes. So... <clears throat> I, I did a little bit of work with uh, Brian Mills, who's a professor at, at Florida. He's done a lot of umpire research. So we started talking about where to get this type of data, how to, uh, we sort of had to do a little bit of, of, of navigation to impute the, the scores of, of each game in each situation. And so we downloaded uh, every pitch taken since 2008, looked at where across the plate, and we could use some, some statistical modeling strategies to identify how the strike zone changed depending on what the sort of incentives were for the umpire. Yeah. And so your the visuals you have in this article, this is on 538. So Michael does some work for various outlets, but including 538 are pretty striking. Can you tell us how strong the effect is that you found? Yeah, so we compared the, the game in, in three different types of what I'll call game states. But basically, uh, one situation is the away team has the lead. And whenever the away team leads, uh, in all likelihood, the umpire is going to get out of there quicker by calling more strikes uh, when the home team is batting in the bottom of the inning. And so if we're looking at the home team batting in the, ball, batting in the bottom of the inning, more strikes leads to fewer opportunities for the home team to extend the game. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of one state. Another one would be that the game is tied, but the home team doesn't have anybody on base. And then the last state would be if, if the home team gets somebody on base, suddenly they appear to, to be the team that, that has a, a greater chance of, of winning quicker. Right. Right. So in that in that last state, when the home team is is maybe more likely to win, we would expect fewer strikes and more balls. With the reasoning being that um, if you call more balls, you're sort of giving the home team every opportunity they can to win the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and that last state sort of corresponds to the Rizzo example earlier, where um, if you call a ball there, it's giving the opp- in that case it actually gave the win to the home team. Mm-hmm. Um, so the differences are pretty extreme. The in the 538 article, we just used aggregated ball strike calls. So. We looked at each sort of grid of the strike zone and, and compared the, the overall percentages. Um, the differences between the, the different game states are sort of 15 to 20 to 30 percentage points, depending on which oh square of the strike zone you're in. Right. Um, and so generally what, that, what, that, what this is doing is it's turning uh, sort of borderline pitches, which are generally 50-50 decisions, into, say, 60-40 decisions or, I see. or 65-35 decisions. So, Michael, that, that is my understanding. In fact, we have, a, we have a professor here who has done some work on, on these data, Aton Green. In fact, Aton's going to be on the show here in a few weeks. But my memory of his work is that it's the ambiguous calls where all the action is, essentially. So there's not, it's not like they're distorting calls down the middle of the plate or way outside. They're just biased on the edges, essentially. Yep, exactly. Okay. All right. Well, listen, combining the two things that we've talked about, the improvement in the NFL draft and the umpire research, you did a piece a few years ago for 538 on the umpires change um, learning, essentially, over time. This is something we were always curious about whenever they started getting feedback that's available now with all the technology. And you found this dramatic, dramatic, it looks dramatic anyway, the improvement in umpire performance over time. Can you talk a little bit about that research? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the perception of umpires is, is 
generally when I write about them, it's, it's to write about ways that they're maybe making biased decisions. Um, but they have gotten better. And so beginning back in the sort of roughly 2008, they started getting reports about how their each game is. And so when the game ends, umpires would, would sort of learn about uh, where they called balls and strikes. And so um, I don't know if all umpires are, are taking it seriously, but certainly by and large, the, the league has used this to, to get a more accurate strike zone. Um, so, it, but it real, real, real quickly, Michael, what are, what, are, what are the institutions around this thing? It's a little surprising for me to hear you say you don't know how seriously the umpires take it. I, aren't the umpires rewarded based on their performance in some way, like the guys who make the postseason, the guys who are retained? Doesn't that so depend in some sense? There's, there's some of that, but I do know, um, and this isn't work that I've done, but people that have looked at whether or not there's any link between uh, ball strike accuracy and postseason assignment um, are yet to find anything that, oh, really? that, sort of, that sort of suggests that the – well, I mean, there's some really accurate umpires that aren't in the postseason and, and vice versa. Uh, uh, inaccurate umpires are in the postseason. Um, well, now I'm really curious how they respond to this feedback after every game. I was, I assumed that they were, you know, riveted by it. Essentially, the whole world's watching their performance. Don't they want to know how they did? Well, we would be riveted by it if we were umpires. <laughs> but I'm not sure if if, if that. Um, I'm sure some of them are, and this is sort of like uh, areas beyond my domain uh, in terms of what I. I just know that there's sort of reports that are out there, and and um, uh, most of them have gotten better over time. Um, and some well, are certainly, I have to, certainly I, more accurate than others. My, I have to admit, with Cade being here and him, one of the people that runs our People Analytics Center, I'm thinking this is really a People Analytics question, oh, which yeah. is imagine you gave feedback to umpires and you could just measure when you gave them feedback. How do they perform in subsequent games? Yeah. Do people have bad runs? Like, for example, maybe a particular umpire, I, you know, personal life affects us all. Maybe they have a bad week followed by a good week. Have you guys looked at what I would call the serial correlation across games for umpires and possibly the role of training in that? And one, let me just add to that. One of the things you're implying there is the heterogeneity, which in, in itself is very interesting. Within-person heterogeneity as well. Sure. I haven't looked at the within-person um, heterogeneity, but I, I, I do know that uh, if you look at, you can look at things like umpire age and umpire experience. Um, and generally, the younger and less experienced umpires have been more prone to this improvement. And so if you're comparing how some of the younger umpires have, have come into the league and, and how much they've improved, that improvement's a little bit steeper than some of the, the veteran, more veteran umpires. But now we need the study of doing that with and without feedback, right? It could be that younger umpires have always improved more, regardless of this new technology. Right. Just it's hard to know if the feedback has made a difference. Right, right, right. So but when did the feedback start? I mean, I'm looking at, your, at the graphs of the improvement, and the particularly striking aspect of it is the massive increase in the probability of calling an actual strike a strike that happened between 2008 and 2010. Jumping massively from, jump from 82 to 82 88. 80, which is gigantic, if you think about it. It's, and, and it's now at around 90. So that's nearly, I mean, it's about a 10% improvement or 8 percentage points. Um, that's huge. I mean, over the course of the season, considering that most pitchers throw about two-thirds strikes, and, and that's just, just a in, lot more strikes right, in happening. In two years. In two years. In two, and a lot, lot more. And I think that's right around the time that this this new technology was introduced in widespread. Okay. And although I think it existed earlier before it was, it was released to the public, and we know that, that this really affected pitchers' careers. I mean, there were certain umpires that were getting these calls outside the strike zones and others not, and it, it, it just got uniform and it changed things. Mm -hmm. um, so do you know that when it was actually introduced? And um, the, your, your timeline about roughly 2008 is when the data sort of became public, um, matches what I'm, I'm familiar with about the situation. Got it. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's exactly right. Got it, got it, got it. 
fascinating, and um, we need to dig in. Matt, we need a we need someone. I need a guest on umpire training, umpire feedback, umpire development. Essentially, there's a lot more to do there. There may be more research out there, but we could probably get someone on to talk about that. Michael, can you tell us what else you're working on? What's next? And honestly, I don't know. You you do work across all these different sports. I don't even know what your personal leanings are. Do you have a favorite sport? Do you have favorite teams? Give us a little I bit think of background. Hockey and football are probably my two favorites in large part because by and large, other than some of this recent umpire stuff, most of my clever ideas in, in baseball were probably done a decade ago. Okay. Uh, and so <laughs> football and hockey seem to have a little bit more opportunity um, and that's right. probably what I'm watching more often. Right. And are you from Maine is hockey country, right? At least in terms of the sports that they're going to, Bates is going to play. They row some maybe, but then. Skidmore. <laughs> no, no. Oh, he, he, he went to Bates. Bates. Oh, he went to Bates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I can't skate to be honest. So <laughs> okay, so yeah, not 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 actually. I played uh, I played football in college um, as well. I was a offensive lineman. Ah. that's that's there's a little bit of experience there. All right. Not many statistical analysts can say they played offensive line in football. So can I ask you about? We we talked about this a few weeks ago. Are you since you said you're a hockey guy? Were you surprised at all the success of the Golden Knights? Given as we discussed, you know, every team could protect. I think it was seven players, seven of players, and then one goalie, etc. Were you surprised that an expansion team did so well so quickly? I think anybody who tells you they aren't surprised is probably lying mm-hmm. um so yeah no i, I don't think I, I think there was a perception league-wide that they would just do like every as badly as other expansion teams i think given the the talent that they were able to acquire uh i, I don't think it's all too crazy that they made the postseason um but to make the postseason to win their division make the postseason and then also have some postseason success um i think is is i don't think anybody had them pick for that right um how long until the toronto Maple Leafs are back winning a Stanley Cup. It's been 40 or 50 years. They just named Kyle Dubas. They promoted him from assistant GM, running basically the AHL club, to GM. And Kyle's been thought of for a long time as maybe the hottest young executive in hockey. Do you think he's all that? And do you think the Leafs are going to be, I don't know, cup winners anytime soon? Well, I mean, I think to to sort of force a hockey team to win a cup is, is hard just because the, the hockey postseason is so random already. Right. Um, but certainly I think the, the, the trend for Toronto is, is in the right direction. Um, they've made a lot of pretty smart decisions recently, and they've acquired a lot of young talent, and, and having somebody who is a little bit more analytically minded in the GM role mm-hmm. I think is only good for the position. Mm-hmm. The team. Mm-hmm. All right, Michael, before we let you go, tell us what we should be looking for from you. What are you working on? What are you thinking about? So the, the the big project we've I've sort of had in the last year or so has been with with Ben Bomber, who um, Shane has worked with in the past. Uh, he's a professor at Smith College, and Gregory Matthews, who's a professor at Loyola, and we've tried to tackle sort of a, a, a to try and learn a, a deeper understanding of of how each sports compares on a sort of game level and season level with respect to randomness. Oh, terrific! So uh, you know when you watch teams play in the regular season. Um, and certainly the perception is that the NBA is that the better team wins more often than maybe in the NHL and NFL, uh, and, uh, NHL and MLB. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our sort of question was to how, how can we sort of rank those and how can we come up with ways of, of sort of comparing the randomness? Right. Um, and so that's been a project that's sort of been in the works, and, and that's, uh, that, that's something that's pretty exciting. But Any early you know, insights the, coming out of it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, the main insight is that in terms of on a game-level scale of randomness and, and, and sort of the propensity for the better team to win, the NBA and NFL are, are actually quite similar. Um, the NFL has this perception of parity, but it's really like a season-level parity with, with, with wins, um, and that's mostly because they only play 16 games. 
if you were to look at the the game to game basis and compare the NBA to NFL, um, there's actually a pretty even distribution in terms of the the discrepancies in team talent. And so, like when the Golden State Warriors play the the Brooklyn Nets, that's that's roughly akin to the New England Patriots playing, say, the Cleveland Browns. So, hold on, Michael. We have two different factors going on here, right? One is the disparity of talent, which would contribute to the likelihood of the better team winning. But the other is just the randomness of the game. So, you guys are parsing these two factors. Right? How do you measure the, the randomness in the game? Just the probability of uh, how you convert, say, a power ranking into a probability of a, a victory? Or looking at the spread from top yeah, to so bottom? We, actually, we looked at um, each game's money line. So, we had money line data from 2005 to 2016. And so what we did is we, if you're familiar with paired comparison models, we adapted paired comparison models to work with money line data. And uh, once you have, because we have money line data in, some, in, in sports, a money line is roughly you can uh, get convert it into a probability. Yeah, yeah. Convert it to a probability pretty easily. And so you can compare the, the sort of team strength estimates from the paired comparison models uh, to, to get. And, and once you do that, because each sport is on the same scale, which is the, the outcome is on the probability scale, um, you're able to, to more sort of acutely compare the, the sort of coefficients between the leagues. So where will you – this sounds really interesting. We're going to need to get, get you back to talk about it. Where, where is that going to show up eventually? Is that going to be an academic paper? or, or is uh, it? So it is uh, – it was accepted into Annals of Applied Statistics um, a couple months ago. Okay. Um, and so it's, we've talked about it at conferences, and at some point we need to do a better job of, of, uh, our, of sharing the sort of um, – the research online, mostly because right now it's an academic paper on the on the archive repository. Um, but at some point, we'll write it up and, and have sort of um, you know bullet points about what some of this means for each team. But I think it's a very surprising top line. I mean, it's very counterintuitive that that a, that the the football game outcomes are as deterministic. NFL outcomes are as deterministic as NBA. I think that goes against almost everybody's intuition. Right. Most people who have looked at parity before have done it on like the, the number of wins in a season. And if you do it that way, the NFL is, is, appears to be nearly as random as, as, as baseball or, or hockey. Um, but in terms of a game-level difference with respect to the, the likelihood of each team winning, um, it, it, it lines up pretty closely to the NBA. Okay. Well, we'll look for more details on that. Michael, thanks for joining us. Wish you the best with the work. Always enjoy following it. All right, thanks so much for having me. You bet. That was Michael Lopez. You can follow him, Stats by Lopez, or on Twitter, at Stats by Lopez. He's an assistant professor of statistics at Skidmore College and one of our favorite follows in the world of sports analytics. That is three quarters of our show. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies and faculty colleagues, Audie Weiner and Eric Bradlow. Dion Simpkins on the soundboard. That is associate producer Dion Simpkins bringing us out of the bottom of the last hour. You can join the conversation. We're open lines for the next 30 minutes. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at com. You can also add us on Twitter. Our handle up there is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall, including if you want to give us an over-under for our over-under segment coming up here in a little bit. Just off the phone with Michael Lopez, one of the best follows you can have out there in sports analytics. He's always publishing something interesting. Great conversation with him over the last half hour. In the next 20 minutes, I guess we're down to just about 20 minutes. We've got a number of topics we want to cover. One of the big pieces of news, probably one of the biggest pieces of news in the world of sports in a while, was that the Supreme Court overturned the ban on 
the 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 trouble that New Jersey was having, whatever the exact legal issue was, that New Jersey was having trouble getting sports gambling legalized. They can now do that. What do you guys make of all this? It's a big deal. Um because sports gambling is something that people love to do, and it's hard to do easily, and it will now become a much bigger industry. And that means a lot of things for statisticians, for one thing. There'll be jobs for, for young data scientists looking for employment. I actually just ran into one of my graduating students. He's going off to Vegas to be a, an analyst, oh, wow. um, and that's well, going to multiply. Of, in what way, like who's going to employ these people? Well, there's a lot of places for opportun- opportunities for work. I mean, so, for example, there could be companies that want to – actually just gamble and make money because there'll be so 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 many more avenues to do this legally. So right now it has to be done over overseas. So uh, a local company that, that that I know of here that actually has an entire division that deals with that makes sports book and they make money on it. They're entirely uh, in, in Ireland. That's where they take place, and they can't communicate. So there's going to be a, just a growth in the business here. But also, um, there's also the on, the on the other side. I mean, this, New Jersey is going to have to hire people to set lines right, and obviously there'll be services um, that will sell these these lines to 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 states who will be who will be. Um, Using these to well, there's money. probably also a third area, which is, um, you know, my first kind of real job while a graduate student was working with Bell Labs with actually our colleague Andreas Buya was on fraud detection problems. And so there's going to be some governing body of statisticians that are looking at uh, strange bets strange movements in right. the line and are going to have to do statistical You're, analysis around fraud detection. And, 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 and that's because you think with more money and more interest, the, the risk of... It corrupting the play that becomes larger. The first yeah. thing that came to my mind when this passed is how is this going to? Because that was the worry. You know, that's why you know, uh, you know the NBA was against it. Now they're for it. The NFL it was about this is going to corrupt play. So we're going to need statisticians to think carefully about what evidence we can have. Here's the way I would describe it: There's going to be a fraud. There's going to be affecting of play. Now the question becomes how rampant will it be? And also, how can you detect it purely from what I would call observational data? I mean, there'll be a legal side of it where the FBI and CIA track down all this stuff. I'm I'm ignoring that for just a second. Based on on on-the-field performance and play, how can we detect, let's call it, strange types of behavior? And Mm -hmm. I think a whole industry is going to have to build around this. Not that statisticians don't already work on these problems, but it will become even more prominent. So mm-hmm. I think there'll be a lot of people hired to do that. Right. It's also going to be just become a much bigger business. I mean, the people who gamble right now, it's, 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 it takes a little bit of work. You've got to find the right location. You've got to find a bookie if you're doing it that way, or you've got to go gamble overseas, and you have worry about getting paid. But just so I understand, just they have a not, lot easier to so do. They, they, haven't legalized, just... they haven't legalized online gambling. Is that correct? They've only legalized in casinos and racetracks, if I understood the law well, correctly. Well, I think what's going to happen is you're going to be able to make bets at the casino through the Internet. And, for example, in, in, you can play oh. poker in New Jersey um, at the casino, or you can play it online poker in New Jersey by logging into the casino I and see, playing, I but you actually have to have an ISP in New Jersey. I wasn't clear that this was going to legalize online betting, oh, albeit via casino. Okay. Yeah. So how, I wonder how many other states are going to jump into this game. I mean, It'll states are pretty revenue-hungry entities, and so it would be surprising if they forewent this opportunity. Right? Well, the number I heard is that 22 states already have laws at some level of, this is prior to the ruling, we're already projecting this ruling, and already have other New Jersey, which is the most extreme, which already passed the law, versus, there'll be 22 states they're predicting by the end of this calendar year 
will get into the game and a bunch of others that will follow. But 22 have a law in the books legalizing it, and they may change the laws to even make it more possible to do this. Wow. I, th- I, think, the, I think it's hard to predict the, way, the shifts that we'd expect in the sports gambling industry as a result of this. I mean, it's just going to be so much broader. Just the, it's a, the number of small bets that are going to come in now relative to what they've historically been is, is just going to be. But maybe not- the sharps are salivating. You know, I don't know. Do more sharks? Fish, fish are coming into the that, stream. That, now that is true, but one thing. Want to translate that? <laughs> <laughs> so the sharp money are the professional gamblers, basically, and square money are the are the public. And 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 the idea is there's a lot more public money coming in now, and that that's opportunity for these professional gamblers. That's right. But of course, that's not an equilibrium story. If there's that much more square money, then you expect more sharps to get into the business as well. You've also got the question of how you just mentioned something I think most people don't appreciate. A big constraint in this industry is getting money down. Even now in Vegas, people have trouble Absolutely. getting money down. You've got That's to find right. outlets. And so I don't know. I mean, if this is, you know, you know, just run of the mill small bets. We have more of those. I'm not sure how much how thick that market's going to be whether Sharps can actually get that much money into that market. It is interesting, honey. It's interesting that, you know, in some sense, obviously you and I both, yeah, we gamble some. We know something about it. My first thing went to be statisticians on fraud detection. Yours went in a different way. It's not that it's right or wrong. But my view is that's where the big, to me, the big regulated part of it is going to come, which means the government is going to be hiring a group of statisticians to be basically real-time monitoring of betting patterns and their relation to on-game play. They just have to. Let's hit a few other quick ones before we go. TPC. So it wasn't that competitive down the road, down the wire, but everyone's talking about Tiger Woods, of course. Eric? Well, so this was the Players' Championship. Um, I mean, it's like the fifth major, they call it. And it for a good reason in that 49 of the top 50 players in the world, for example, played. So this is the top field. These are the same people that play the majors. Uh, Tiger, actually, it's interesting. Thanks to uh, Justin Thomas, who's now number one in the world, and Jordan Spieth, bogeying the 18th hole on the second round, that's why Tiger got to stay around for the weekend, because the cut moved from minus 2 to minus 1. Tiger then went out and shot 65 on um, Saturday, his third round, which, by the way, it was the worst 65 I've ever seen in my life in the following sense. <laughs> it should have been 61 or 62. He blew a number of putts near the end of the round. Wouldn't that be like a course record, 61, 62? It would. The record okay. 63. Right. He should have broken the course record. On Sunday, he shot 69. But let's be clear, when it mattered, until it was clear it was over, he was like 8 under through 12 holes. I mean, so he was for a 20-something hole, 30-hole stretch. He was like 15, 13 under par. He got from minus 1 to minus 14. It what does looked, that mean to, to you in the future about Tiger? I, I just believe he's uh, he's on track to win again. Um, he's all of his shots looked great. His putting looked good. He looked like he had confidence in his game. He looked physically fit. He just everything to me is trending towards. I mean, let me just be clear. Also, he's played let's call it eight tournaments since he's returned. He's had five top ten finishes. For anybody else, let's be clear, this would be like this is the emerging superstar for Tiger. You know, it's the norm, I guess. Okay, the star in MLB right now. I somehow, under the radar, I think, is Otani. Adi, what's going under on? Under the radar? What's, what's going on with Otani? Uh, he's under, I guess he's under the radar to the pu- public because he just doesn't play either position enough. 
right? So he has he's like four and one. I'm not sure exactly what his record is, but he's his pitching is phenomenal. He's enormous numbers of strikeouts. Um, he's got to be one of the top ten pitchers in in the league, if not even higher. And then on the batting side, he's doing it even. I mean, I think he's even better as a batter. He has at least six home runs and probably one quarter the amount of time, maybe not one quarter, one third the time that you're seeing most of the other uh, major league batters um, uh, in terms of plate appearances. So it's just on a per on a rate basis, the guy's just smoking and yeah. on both sides of the uh, of the of the diamond. Which one has shocked you more, the pitching side or the hitting side? The hitting side has shocked me, too. me more. Uh, I mean, because hitting is pitching is something that we understand fairly well. We see lots of young talent who throw 100 miles an hour. He's got great movement on his pitches. I think we thought he would do well. Um, it's going to be hard to maintain that, but the fact that he's he's just clobbering the ball. I mean, he's just not only hitting it his line terrific, but he's hitting it extremely hard. I mean, he's not quite Stanton, but almost. Well, we talked. We just looked at the projected stats on a 162 game basis. We just talked about it's it's 41 home runs and 130 RBIs, and he's got an ops of like 1.07. Right. So that's I mean, there's typically two to three players a year, if that, who have who have OPSs over a thousand over the course of a season. Now, obviously, it's not a season. And so if we eliminate Mike Trout, down. it's down to one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So will he will he qualify for all of these Neither. things? He'll he'll qualify for neither of them on a full uh, season. His yeah. rate's just not high. Yeah, I'm curious to know when you combine, say, a, a wins above replacement, you get to add them both, and whether I mean the real question going forward is what's the best usage, and in how to do that, and and they're just experimenting, and ultimately you might end up deciding that the best usage is only on one side. Mm. Well, it's interesting. So which I mean I think I've asked this question before, but which would you go? And just to get add one more data point, I also looked at his average fastball speed. It's ninety seven point eight. So that's He's, Not bad. Which is, I think, places him one of the top three or four. It would be one of the top three or four in the league. So would you, if, if I could give you his current pitching projected out to the whole season, I had to make a choice, or his current hitting projected out to the whole season, which would you take? You can either have him at his, his ERA, by the way, is not, it's good. It's like 3.4. Uh, okay, so it's, that's an easy you question have? for me. I would have his hitting for the course of the season. More More opportunities. Yeah, it adds up more. I mean, I also think that that the 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 value of a pitcher, he's not quite there to really rack up. If you look at the distribution of say WAR for batters, you'll find many batters who have WAR between four and and eight. You'll find a whole bunch pitchers three or four, mm-hmm. and they, they accumulate large numbers between zero and, f- and four. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's war for the year on the pitching side is looking at around four, four and a half maybe, which is very, very, very good. But if he, his batting, if you, t- if you translated that out, it would probably be six or seven. Wow, you're talking. You're you're giving a little bit of lesson just on relative yeah. contribution, depending on position, whether it's a position player or a pitcher. And you're saying the good He's, ones, I mean, it just comes. They contribute more as as hitters. I mean, his his absolutely, and his his ERA is right now three and a half, four. I mean, well, projecting out, we don't really know. He could go. He could, his strikeout rate is so high, he could really turn into a Kershaw like pitcher. Okay. That was the right. thing that also amazed me. I think if I got the numbers right, I think he's pitched 31 innings and has 42 strikeouts. Yeah, so we'll see. I mean, Kershaw has like an eight or nine WAR. I mean, he's he is that valuable. So he's 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 hitting three forty two and his OPS is one point oh one five. Hey guys, what what's your take on Robinson Cano? One of your former players. Very saddened by that. Surprised? Um, yeah, 
honestly. Yes. So he, he comes down with a positive drug test. It's a masking agent. It's a masking. And 80-game yeah. suspension. Many people think this is going to knock him out of Hall of Fame consideration. He apparently is a guy whose numbers were very compelling. Oh, absolutely. I'll give you, I'll give you a second numbers. baseman? Yes, yeah, no, he's no doubt. second baseman, so his career numbers, 2,417 hits, 304 batting average, and a, a war, career war of 67.5 as a second baseman. That's Hall of Fame. Yeah. He's going, he would have gone to the Hall of Fame. And now? No! Can I don't know. Really? No. Maybe. You don't think so? No. What do you think about A-Rod? you think he's going to make it? No. No. Wow. <laughs> All right. We turn to the final stretch now. It's Wharton Moneyball's Over Under. Eric Bradley, what do you got for us this week? Well, so the first one I never thought I would have to ask, but we've already got three games down in the uh, conference finals in basketball. Let's start with the first one. If I add up the combined wins of the Cavs and the Rockets in their two series, so the Cavs are down 2 nothing. we know that. The Rockets are down one nothing. Over under four and a half. Mm-hmm. I'm, I so I'll go strong, with Kate. strong intuitive no. It's just intuitive. I have to go through the math, and they may not get, they may not get five opportunities. I guess that, that the the minimum opportunities they would get is four. There's two more games for sure for the Cavs, and, and there's three, three more games so for five, sure. Each of them. So one of the teams has to win at least win three, and the other or win the series, or and one of them has to win, win two, two mm-hmm. to do that. Wow, four and a half. You want to go first, Kate? I'm going under. I just the the. I will, we're going to learn a lot how Cleveland responds when they get home. But I'm I, I, Eric has persuaded me that Boston's just so much the superior team. How much more can LeBron do? And the first game was pretty sobering for those of us who've been pulling for Morey and the Rockets. The, the Warriors went down to Houston and said, "Hey, it's time for us to show you who can actually play." And that's in Houston. Okay, Adi, so, what do you think? So, well, I'm going to I'm going to channel Shane, who would go over next. Um, and now, what would I do? Um, By the way, so, even if you just be clear, you even believe even if you believe that the Cavs are going to come back and win the series, which give them four, you obviously yep. then believe that the Rockets aren't going to get swept. Okay, so they'll, I, they'll, I actually, exactly. I think that I do think that it's more likely that the, the Rockets win two to three um, than it is that the Cavaliers win two to three. And that's why, if you really pull back and go, look, you know, the whole LeBron equation, put him in Cleveland, they're going to win a few games there, and then and then that makes it a tough call. Um, I hate to. I mean, I think my gut is saying saying under because that just seems what the stat statistics really should be saying but it's, it's you know there's question. this it's this, a, it's a this thing question. that says the priors say over yeah priors and, and, and you haven't adjusted all the way yet good good and matt by the way let's keep track of these let's keep track <laughs> so, of so i'm going to i'm going to go over over and you went under i'm going i'm not only going under but I'll, I got a dollar in my pocket right now for anybody who wants to put some. Well, let's wait till it's legalized. We'll put it. We'll, 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 we'll <laughs> bet it there. But I'm going. Over. I'm going under. Uh, how about the following? Let's stay in basketball for a second. Uh, Matt's given us an interesting number. So in the next three years, let's include this year. The Warriors win one and a half championships in the next three years. Oh, so one and a half is the over under. In the next three years, including we'll start with you, including this year. So they have this year and two more years. I'm going under. Under yes. I think their dynasty ends within next year. I think it's a terrific question. They have to be the favorite this year, and a pretty heavy favorite at that at this point. So, but do you give them more than? Let's even be generous. Do you give them? 
Give him, give I was going to say give him 0.75. Let's give even give him 0.75 for this year. in expectations. Let's give him 0.75 in expectation and this then year. You're, you want another seven? You want another three quarters over the next two years? I think that's not unreasonable. I mean, are they going to lose? That's why it's a good, what's good the contract? Under. The contract. Well, uh, thank you for Matt for having it here. Uh, Durant has a player option at the end of this year. I'd be shocked if he didn't come back. Yeah. Clay Thompson has one more year, and Green, Curry, and Iguodala have at least three more years. And what do we believe about competition? The Rockets aren't – it's hard to imagine they're going to get a whole lot better. Unless LeBron decides to go to the Rockets. Well, LeBron moving around is an interesting piece. That's probably the single biggest variable here. And the Celtics are going to get better. So I think it's a great question. It's right. I would put it right at one and a half. Do I have to pick a side? I'm going to go over. I think they've got. A, I think they're going to win this year, and they've got another one in the All summer. All right, I'm I'm diverse, di- directly contra- mm-hmm. contradicting you on two in a row, and, mm-hmm. and I'm taking over. I'm taking over as well. Oh, uh, both of you. I, I hate both. My answers are both the intuitive, like momentum answers. Yeah. I hate that. Give me one I can go contrarian on, Eric. Let's go. All right. Well, let's go with. Let's talk about mean reversion and using priors. Let's talk about. Let's move into baseball. It's a sport, and Adi and I still have to decide if we're going to the Yankees today and the the uh, Nationals. But let's move on to that. Um, eighty four and a half wins for the Phillies. So just to let you know, the priors. The priors were that they were going to win seventy five and a half games, and they're playing six hundred baseball exactly right now. They're twenty four and sixteen, which we can do a little math. That's at a 96-win pace. Do the Phillies win 84-and-a-half games? So after, based on a quarter of the season, are you willing to give them nine more wins than the prior? And by the way, just doing the math, if they were going to be roughly a 500-team Audi, they would be 20-and-20 20 20 right now, roughly. Maybe even let's call it 19-and-21. So they've got five win exceedances right now in the first quarter of the season because that's how you have to do the math. So Adi Weiner, our baseball expert, I'll start with you. 84-and-a-half. Given they're plus five on seventy five and a half win pace right now, I think it's a good it's a good toss up. I think that's exactly these three where have heading. been good so far. <laughs> <They're> absolutely <laughs> heading. Um, it's hard to bet against your local team, so my gut is out to saying over the Phillies. Come on, um, I I would say that there has a lot. There's a lot of competition in that division, and they can play a lot of games against the Nationals, against the Braves, um, and I'm going to go under. Oh, heck, you stole my thunder, man. I'm going under two. I'm shorting these guys for one very boring reason. Fangraphs projects them at 82. So I, I know nothing to do here other than to go to Fangraphs. I'm going to go with Fangraphs 82, well, under th- 84. That's interesting because Fangraphs is essentially giving them their victories and then just playing out their prior. Is it that boring? I think that's pretty much. No, they can't be going that boring. You have to be updating. But I don't think they're updating that much. I mean, if you think of if they're forecasting eighty-two, how many games over their original forecast? I mean, you, you know, just I'm carrying forth Eric's Eric's calculation, except I don't have the numbers in front of me. Well, I'm going to do a little okay, different. We're going to need to find that. I, out. I'm going to go yeah. over, but let me say the math I'm doing. They're twenty-four and sixteen. That's forty games. So that means there's a a uh, hundred and twenty-two left. If they go sixty-one and sixty-one in those games, play five hundred baseball, they get to eighty-five. I believe they can go five hundred the rest of the season. So I'm going over. And that's the way I always do the math. What do you have to do to get to a certain number? For me, I'm going over because of 61 and 61. So yeah, they, so, they, so Fangraphs just still does not believe that Phillies are a 500 team. That's what it, that's that is what correct. That, yeah. just, just under. Just under 500. Mm-hmm. That's Just right. under. Maybe the last one we have, Dodgers, yeah. 80 yeah. and a half wins on the opposite side. So the Dodgers are playing 400 baseball, and they were predicted 600 baseball. So they were predicted 96 wins, essentially. So Dodgers over under 80 and a half. Well, they're, of course, been hit by all these injuries, which is the wild card in all of these things. And so you'd have to carry that through and say, no, they're not going to make it. Um, 
I don't know what the actual forecasts for return of these players are. I think Kershaw will come back. He has a Turn, bicep Turner's injury. back. Turner's back. back, but Seager's out for the season. Um, and they just don't look like they're going to make it. So I'm going to. I'm actually going to go under on that. Think, yeah, just to do the math, just so you know, Cade might as well reveal what I'm doing right now. They would have to go 65 and 56. They'd have to play nine games over 500 for the remaining 120 games. So like, play like 570, 580 baseball over the rest of the season. So I'm going to go under. I'm, I think Adi's been on a roll today. I'm, I, you've undermined my faith in fan grass. We have to understand their process better. And I'm going to go under on the Dodgers. I'm going under on the Dodgers, too. All right. Well, that has been an entertaining hour, fellas. I hate to short the Dodgers because they've got they've got no, Mr. Zaid running the club out there, a behavioral economist. But there's new teams bouncing around. Love to see the Angels do something. How long has it been since they've been in the postseason? They don't get enough. You the know. Angels? Yeah. Didn't well, they win the World Series in what, 12 or 13? The Angels? Yeah. No. No, it's been too long, right? It's been much longer than that. Weren't they yeah, good in 2012 yeah, yeah, yeah. or 2013? No, no. I'm, I'm, Oh, 2002, oh, 2002 so, Oh, 12, we 2002. Need, what you I'm know. saying is we need some new new teams out there. So Dodgers, maybe next time around. All Arizona. Right, that, that has Arizona. <laughs> that has been another episode of Wharton Moneyball. We do this every Wednesday morning. Come back and join us for Adi, Eric, and Cade. Thanks for listening. Between now and next week, enjoy your sports. This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. 